The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. Hey there, I just wanted to kick off the show with a quick note that this episode of The Writer Files is brought to you by the inspiring team at Author Accelerator. There's never been a better time to get serious about that book idea that's been rattling around in your head. And working with an Author Accelerator book coach is the best way to write forward. Author Accelerator book coaches give writers feedback, deadlines, and step-by-step guidance while you write so that you can actually finish your book. Your book coach will give you the customized tools and blueprints to success that are so often lacking in the traditional publishing world. And if you think book coaching sounds like a gig you'd like to do, many authors and copywriters have the exact skill sets needed to become great book coaches themselves. Author Accelerator offers intensive book coach training and master classes so that you can help other writers reach their goals. Just head over to authoraccelerator.com slash writerfiles for more info and to get a free seven-day writing challenge to start mapping out your own book. That's authoraccelerator.com slash writerfiles. Portraying myself as a thief, I think, was not only because I felt like a thief before and felt stolen from or robbed, but also because this act of writing a memoir, when you take other people's stories feels so morally dicey. I mean, you want to write your own story, which is what I was doing. I wasn't writing anyone else's. I was writing mine. But if you're writing your own story, you necessarily pull other people's story into your Mm -hmm. net. Mm -hmm. And they serve your story in that sense. It's not their full story. And so it's, it's tricky and it feels dangerous and it feels like theft. And it feels like a difficult thing to do that you would only want to do if you had to. Greetings and welcome back to The Writer Files. I am still your host, Kelton Reed. And in part two of this file, the New York Times bestselling memoirist and journalist Lisa Brennan Jobs returned to talk about her decades-long journey to publication, why it's so important to find yourself in the pages, the meaning of memory, and the imposter syndrome that all writers face, especially the kids of celebrities. Lisa's a Brooklyn-based writer whose father was the widely worshipped tech pioneer and entrepreneur, Steve Jobs best known as the co-founder of Apple. And her first book, Small Fry, is her lauded memoir about growing up being shuffled between single parents in Silicon Valley during the 1980s and 90s, always in the orbit of her celebrity dad and struggling artist mom. Small Fry was a New York Times, New Yorker, and People Magazine top 10 book of the year for 2018, 
and Best Book of the Year for the LA Times, NPR, Amazon, GQ, and Publishers Weekly. In part two of this file, Lisa and I discussed how being bored and uncomfortable can lead to breakthrough, why the writing process needs to be the master, not the servant of your time, the importance of not rushing to publish, how the author minimizes distractions and comparative thinking while she writes, what it's like to travel through time and get the things you've always wanted, how big words can distract from the impact of your writing and why you need to write the stories you thought you might take to your grave. If you missed the first half of this show, you can find it in the show notes in the archives at writerfiles.fm and you can find the last 100 episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in. Stay tuned. The Writer Files is brought to you by my friends at copyblogger.com. Words that work. Build your online authority with powerfully effective content marketing. Get superior content marketing education so you can build a remarkable online presence. Authors, bloggers, journalists, online publishers, and entrepreneurs, head over to copyblogger.com to learn more. That's copyblogger.com. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published and leave us a rating or a review over on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us. You know, you keep coming back to this idea of memory and how it's kind of circular or, or you know, whatever, how, how we deal with um, traumatic things or, or, you know, these things that de- are deeply affecting. But have you, since the book has been published, had more, you know, kind of catharsis or revelatory thoughts or, or, or I should say realizations about your relationship with your mom or your relationship with your dad or, you know, the ongoing, cause it keeps going. Right. And you, and you probably, you're probably jotting things down and you're like, Oh, maybe, you know, or did you get it all out? <laughs> I felt like I'd gotten it all out, but also the process of editing was so long and arduous and, Also, I think the sleep deprivation and the sort of radical life shift of having a baby right as the book came out Mm. meant that I just shifted my focus into a a new place. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like, oh, wait, I should have included that one scene. I haven't felt like that. There's one person that I think maybe I should have included in the acknowledgments and maybe I I made a mistake there. I read it over when I had had just had my son because I realized it was the last edit I had the chance to make any changes. Mm. And for a while there, I had been just disgusted with my own writing. I mean, people had said to me I would be, but I had no idea how disgusted, how how intense that feeling was when I would have to read over edits. It was just, ugh, miserable. You know, why should this ever go into the world? This is really bad. But that final reading after I had had time from it and a huge life change, I thought, I was turning the pages and I thought, oh my gosh, what's going to happen to her? And so I thought, okay, I'm kind of liking this. But there was Mm. one last cut that my editor had said to do. She'd recommended some cuts that I did not make at all, actually. Um, There were cuts and and I'm so glad I did not make them. But there was one cut that she had recommended. And as I read through the final, final, you know, I'm only allowed to make 1% of changes and then it's it. I thought, okay, I'm ready to let that go. And honestly, I cannot even tell you what part that was anymore. Hmm. Um, so I have perhaps become dumber. And also I think there was a quality of putting my life on hold for so long. I mean, I, writing can be the master. It can't be the servant of your time, 
of your day, at least for me. So I can see friends in the evening, but I can't plan to see friends in the evening if I'm writing hmm. because the writing might go into the evening or I might be too exhausted or, but it's not even really that. It's just, if I have an out at the end of the day, it disturbs the whole day hmm. because I don't then get down to that mealy place that's so uncomfortable and I can't be willing to sit there for very long because I know I have freedom. So in that way, I had to let go of certain friendships, not really let them go, but kind of put them on hold for a while. And I couldn't see my friends as much. And, and I just became, and I would lock my phone away because texting also has a similar effect where it gives you a serotonin rush, probably equal to like two days of good writing, you know? So, so why, why spend the two days of, of, (laughs) of agony if, you know, of, of agony and joy, but why spend the two days of such a roller coaster if you can just get it in a text? So I would find myself as soon as I got to a hard place, reaching for my phone and then, Mm -hmm. and then pretty soon I'm reading an article and somehow even reading an article feels like an accomplishment, which it is not, um, (laughs) is not when you have a book to finish. Um, so I would have to lock my phone away and I would not really make so many plans and I'm pretty social person. So I think when the book was done, when the book was done, I was, I was so ready to live a little and that's what I'm trying to do now. I'm trying to live a little. Um, but, but the other thing is I slowed down the publication process by years. I switched publishers because they were rushing me and I knew it wasn't ready yet. And even with my publisher that was slower, I had to, at a couple points, slow them down a bit. They wanted to publish in spring and we ended up publishing in fall also because I had a baby, but, but in part because in the end, especially for this book, I felt like I needed to wait until it was actually done. And Hmm. so I think if I had published it when it wasn't quite cooked, I would have feelings like that now. And I would maybe be still feeling inspired about that now. Whereas right now I'm like done. I'm done. I'm I'm ready to look back at my parents and think about them again when I'm 80. But right (laughs) now I feel like I'm done. Yeah, that's cool. All right. Well, you've talked about process a little bit, locking your phone away. Um, Have you ever bumped into any block? feel like we need to talk about how I lock my phone away though. Oh, yes, please. Just in case someone's like, but wait, tell but wait, me. Um, how did she it's do on it? Amazon. There's, but I'm, probably other places too, but there's a food addiction lockbox, oh. um, which it, you know, you just, and in it, and it, you can lock your phone in it or your mode, your, you know, internet box in it for days I like even. I like that. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't heard yeah. that or, one before. Or just four minutes. Yeah. And they sell replacement bottoms for these boxes for people that break into them, <laughs> um, which I've never done. But I think it's, I think it's delightful that they've already made a provision for human nature. Yeah. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow. A DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Almond is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction. And in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. 
Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. I mean, obviously there is something incredibly tedious about that, about that process, but I think it is important to be bored Mm-hmm. In order, in order to kind of access that cre- creative flow state, and and you know, I think that's why a lot of writers use the uh, reward system, or you know, they can't use the internet until they've done their words for the day, their word count for the day, or right, and like, you can't use it in the morning, right? Yeah. The morning, you can't That'll use de- it in the derail your it, productivity. Exactly, you have to use it after you've done the work. You can't sort of, yeah. you can't block off three hours at ten a.m. You have to start in the beginning with no internet and then turn it on, I think. I like that. Yeah, right. Because as soon as you dip into your tone into email, you're, you're kind of doomed. And well, then, you're in the comparative mind. Yeah. And if I was in a comparative mind, I would just feel like offing myself. I mean, not really. But I w- if I was in the comparative mind, I would feel so gloomy about myself and my work. And if I was just doing my work and there was nothing to compare it to, I was the only person in the world. I was mm-hmm. the only writer in the world. And I was just doing the work I had to do that day. Then I could do it. Bring in other writers, bring in other people and other professions, other women, other memoirists. And I'm sunk. I can't even get any words out. And yeah. from the, when you're starting to compare, you think, well, but at least I'm looking at the truth. You know, I, I shouldn't be writing. I'm terrible. But uh, it's not a it's not a truth that's useful to doing your pages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Maybe I it's think, true, but who cares? Well, it absolutely <laughs> comes through in the work and Small Fry is, you know, has obviously been lauded as one of the best books of of last year. It's recently out in paperback, so listeners need to to seek it out. Um, but yeah, there was something about I want to go back to you just and the res, how it resonated. For me personally, I think being, um, you know, also a, a Gen X, Gen Xer. I don't know if you're technically a Gen Xer. You might be on the. I think the, I'm uh, technically a Gen Xer, and I just learned that about a month ago. I'm settling with it. I'm trying to, trying yeah. to understand it. <laughs> I'm so yeah. sorry, um, yeah. but yeah, just I think have you know because I also had single parents um, yeah. growing up in the '80s, and, and kind of <laughs> that that you know you kind of ping pong between the excess and the. You know, just the struggle um, of, you know, that's just everyday life stuff. And, and it's all so relatable, I think, even though, you know, it's kind of, uh, you're, you're kind of in the, 
the orbit of, of your dad and, and his uh, kind of cult of celebrity. You're well, that was also, my hope. My hope is yeah. that people saw their childhoods in it. Absolutely. You know, I, I 100% got that. And I think it kind of, it, it gives me a little, you know, shiver to think that it's it's so accurate and just capturing that moment in history. And, and I, there was just, there was one line, I think, about the uh, the Good Earth restaurant. Um, <laughs> yeah. The because Earth. it was a chain, I think, right? And I, we had one in Boulder. later it became a chain or maybe then. I, I don't know. I didn't know it was a chain. It makes I, sense. Yeah. I, I definitely remember that smell of the tea when you oh walked God, in, 100%. <laughs> and then, of course, like my parents were kind of also a little new agey, hippy-dippy. Um, so a lot of that stuff, I think, resonated because I think a lot of people were were deeply influenced by that counterculture stuff. And I think, you know, your mom being an artist and, and uh, you know, um, I, I, we especially thought the, um, the stick guy was... Uh, was one of the more humorous, but like weird. I remember it like my, cause my dad hung out, hung out with a lot of these guys. He was kind of like a spiritual uh, healer of sorts. And, and there was a lot of these weird. There was a guy who my mom dated for a short period of time who decorated sticks. Yeah. And I thought it was just absurd. And my mother <laughs> right. was kind of getting into it. And I was like, I, I just needed my mother to come back and be my mother again. And finally, you know, she's like, well, it is a little silly, but then it still filled me with rage. I, I kind of had to, to write about it to exercise the rage. Yeah. But there, you know, in the crystal thing and like, just like all these spirit, weird spiritual totems I remember from that era. And then, mm-hmm. and then there's like the down to earth, like 80 stuff, like everybody in the eighties was like experiencing this, you know, just the excess of the eighties. Like it was just everywhere, like bleeding mm-hmm. out of every ad and, and, uh, you know, I just, I do, I, I really remember that and resonated with that, but. I guess another thing you keep as a child, which is that remember, remembering how profoundly you long for things you wanted. Yeah. And, um, and I think writing about them, sometimes you, you get them. It's a way to get them, get those things you, you desperately wanted that you couldn't have at the time. Yeah. It's sort of, it's, it fills the want. Well, yeah. So maybe coming back to that kind of you know, that, you know, your dry humor and the, the kind of biting wisdom that far surpasses your years of, of but you're going back and, and you're coming to it with a, well, you get to wisdom. keep your child self company. That's so cool. Right. You get to sort of, sh- sort of go back and forth between the woman and the, and the girl. So you're time traveling. And also, <laughs> yeah, you're time traveling. And at times yeah. also, um, as the girl, you felt really alone. And when you go back, you get to keep her company. And the other thing is you get to play with the edge a little bit because however hard it gets, and again, this is not a memoir of suffering at all. I mean, you just said humorous, and I think I tried to make it as funny as I could. Um, but but you you get to go and, and – and, oh, oh, sorry. I was saying you get to play with that edge. So the edge is something like no matter how hard it gets, the reader knows she made it through because she's writing the book. Mm-hmm. So – that's a fun edge you get to play with a little um, when you're writing a memoir. Uh, you get to play with things that feel a little dangerous or things that feel a little um, scary because because as a reader, you know you know that the person came out okay, you know. Yeah, I love that. Well, um, you've talked about some writers that that influenced your work and and your life. Obviously, can you talk a little bit about the influence of your aunt? Uh, Mona Simpson and, and, you know, cause she's obviously appears in the book 
And I, I thought, you know, how could she have not had a, a pretty big impact on your writing life? Yeah, she was, she was magical. You know, she was a woman who was supporting herself with her art, who was glamorous, I thought, and who she wrote a book called Anywhere But Here and has written many incredible books. I love Off Keck Road and My Hollywood. And so I think she, she also wanted things to be easier between my parents, I think, and was trying for that in some ways. Mm-hmm. And she was a, a shining model of what a woman could become. She was bright and um, doing what she wanted to be doing and passionate about her career. And so, and she also, so with this book, she actually gave it a read through and when it was fairly well along its way, when just when I was changing publishing houses, hmm. um, so I had a good, you know, and relatively short draft by that time, I don't know, 300, 350 pages instead of, you know, 1200 beginning and then, you know, 700. And so, and she read it through and she gave me some great ideas. One, I had too many characters. She said, it's, you know, it's one hmm. of the trouble of memoirs by the end, but by the end you have all these characters and you can't remember who they are. And it was true in the end, I I cut out a lot of characters, um, not because I, you know, I mean, I obviously knew so many more people than are mentioned in this book, but you just don't need as many as you just don't need so many to feel like a life is full in a book. It's so odd. Hmm. And then, um, so it just wasn't necessary to name everyone and it wasn't necessary to include any, everyone like my high school friends. You didn't really need to know all of my high school friends and who they were. And then she was helpful (laughs) in the young, in the early chapters, I sometimes used complicated words. Like I remember I used the word etiolated um, when mm. I was maybe eight years old. And she said, you don't need so, so many complicated words. And I think the reason I was holding on to them was because I didn't want the reader to think I was dumb. I wanted my writing to shine. And I, so I wanted to be able to use the full scope of my vocabulary. But of course, that's yeah. a dumb idea when you're writing about a young kid because it jolts you out of the story and the narrative to read such a word. Yeah. Um, but I was... You know, so so my editor actually had the same comment because I thought, well, maybe Mona doesn't know. <laughs> my editor had the same comment, and it was funny because some words that are more complicated just didn't seem to didn't seem to bother, didn't seem to jolt you out of the narrative, and then mm-hmm. others, maybe even some less complicated words, did. So I just had to do that properly. And my editor at Grove, Elizabeth Schmitz, was is just incredible, and she was sort of masterful at knowing when to cut and when to leave. But Mona's comment was right on. I'm trying to think. And then she was also pointing out some things she really liked about it, which was nice. You know, oh, this is a very good scene. Oh, this is Mm. a good scene. You know, this might make people upset, but it's really good. You know, (laughs) sort of like, (laughs) oh, no. Um, Well, as they say, you have to, you have to uh, let go of the idea that anybody's going to like your stuff. And sometimes the stuff that people don't like is the most, affecting right i think so and philip lopate has a wonderful short essay about uh about do you ask people permission for your memoir for scenes that they were in and his argument is you don't you don't send them a copy of your book ahead of time because then you're Mm -hmm. asking them to take responsibility for what is ultimately yours and i think i did end up sending my book to people and talking with them about it beforehand and and sending it to my mother and you know and making certain changes that people asked for but honestly not so many. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But I I think that there's something to that that you 
And I think that's why also there's, there is a theme of theft in this book. You know, I mean, you don't realize yeah. you're going to have themes it's like high school English. You write a book and, and you refine and refine it. And then you realize you have these themes, like a, you're discussing high school literature or something. And I think it's because lives have themes. <laughs> I yeah. mean, the rules of story actually do apply to life, to life. And so this, this idea of theft and this feeling of being ripped off, um, Hmm. that sort of came together, I think was in part because, well, it, portraying myself as a thief, I think, was not only because I felt like a thief before and felt stolen from or robbed, but also because this act of writing a memoir, when you take other people's stories, feels so morally dicey. I mean, you want to write your own story, which is what I was doing. I wasn't writing anyone else's. I was writing mine. But if you're writing your own story, you necessarily pull other people's story into your mm -hmm. net. Mm -hmm. And they serve your story in that sense. It's not their full story. And so it, it's, it's tricky and it feels dangerous and it feels like theft. And it feels like a difficult thing to do that you would only want to do if you had to. Well, that's pretty interesting. And, you know, I think asking about your aunt and your relationship with her, I thought one of the, one of the more interesting facets of that relationship was that she had written about you and you were kind of terrified by this idea that she was taking, you know, she was fictionalizing things that had happened to her in, in real life. Have you, have you thought about, did you ever consider fiction? I really don't. I don't love the idea of fiction because I, most of the time when I'm writing, I particularly like the bones of fact. Mm -hmm. The more facts I have, the more I feel I have some space to be fanciful, M meaning accurate. Just I can be more lyrical if I have all the facts. So I'm not sure how I would write fiction because I don't construct facts. Mm -hmm. It's just not, it's like, it doesn't feel delicious to me. The delicious part feels like, having all the facts together so you have a structure in which you can play. Amazing. I don't know what I would do if the, if the whole field was open for play. I think <laughs> I might just sit down and cry, you know? So it yeah. just doesn't, it feels like nonfiction is my, my thing. Yeah. Um, which is too bad because fiction writers are usually more exciting and they wear more colors. <laughs> and are they? They, yeah. <laughs> they wear so. more colors. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Um, but it, you know, when I read about Caro's process, that's what makes me the most excited. Hmm. Fiction writers seem like uh, magical foreign creatures. I, it doesn't feel like it's my thing. <laughs> well, before we wrap up here with any, any advice you have for your, for your fellow scribes, I just want to say thank you. And, and I think your journalism background really come, shines through in, the, in, the, in Small Fry because uh, you do so much with so little. So how, lo how long was the uh, unedited manuscript? Can you say how many words it was? Or how I remember I wrote one chapter and I was worried about being too brief. So I wrote it out, really wrote it out long, long when I was writing it again. And I did the word count and I almost started crying. It was 30,000 words. I was in one chapter. I thought, okay, <laughs> oh, no. no, you need to not be. So there were just wow. so many iterations. I mean, if you think of how many years, yeah. I remember I have some bound copies, you know, part one and part two, and then they're bound yeah, and single spaced yeah. and Times New Roman. I mean, it started out so many words. And then finally I got it down to something that was about 700 pages, um, 1.5 wow. spaced Times New Roman. Okay. And Philip Lopate, who has been a, such a mentor and good friend of mine, 
he said he would read it. And he and he's good because he tells you the truth, but he's gentle with it and he laughs at you. He laughs at you in a way that you feel like he loves you even so somehow. So he was the only person I trusted with that shaggy mm. document. Interesting. And yeah. he you read it in those. a day and said, oh, no, no, you, yeah, you, it will work out. You have to keep on going. You know, you're, you, this, yes, you have a book. That's cool. um, but I said, well, the editor, you know, this was an editor I moved on from. The editor saying I should just cut this and cut this whole sections. And he said, no, 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 it's like you, you need to be more delicate and refined with your cuts. You know, this, is, this isn't just cut whole sections time. This is like mm -hmm. take scenes that are working and, and, and cut within them. You know, yeah, yeah. so, um, which is of course a lot more work. So you're paring it down and yeah. So, and, and then there were just a lot of repeats, right? You don't need a lot of skating scenes. It's just bizarre how the human mind creates <laughs> fullness out of so little. I mean, we went skating, you know, I don't know, 50 times and I've only got two there, but that was yeah. all I needed. Oh, those are great scenes. Okay. Well, did you, did, I guess I had asked you this earlier, but we kind of circumvented it, but did you, you know, that is a lot of words, but. Oh my God. Did you run into writer's block at any, cause if you're saying from, you know, Genesis to publication, that it was about a decade or were you, did you go through periods of block where you were not, you know, where you were struggling to get words onto the page? Um, I just went through periods of knowing that everything I was writing was terrible and <laughs> had to get a lot of encouragement from people. Yeah. I find that again, putting away the devices, putting away anything that allows comparative thinking for for a long enough period of time is what worked for me for yeah. writing. So I just, you know, it, if you wake up and check the news, if I woke up and checked the news, my whole day was shot because then yep. I'm thinking in terms of this versus that, this versus that. And it somehow turns that part of my brain on. Um, so I'd have to just wake up, maybe read a little bit of a book, have breakfast and start writing and do that for days. I went to stay at a friend's place in Tahoe for a little while and well, actually for, it turned out to be a fairly long while. Um, but they had Netflix you know, or some sort of box where you could watch stuff. Uh -oh. And at first I started, you know, watching a movie every night, but it was somehow cutting into my productivity, you know, cause reading yeah. at night, it seems to be better. So then I thought at the end of this, at the end of this stay, you're not going to want to look back and think, Oh, it would have been better if I hadn't watched those movies. You're going to want to <laughs> think that you gave it everything, you know? So I just put away, I locked away that box. I locked away my phone and I just, you know, which is such a luxury, but you know, I have a landline at my writing studio. I don't have a, I don't, so I can just lock away my cell phone without the possibility of emergencies Smart. as much. Um, yeah. and so, sorry, what would, what did you ask me again? And then no, just probably just getting sleep is important. <laughs> yeah, no, we talk about this often and I think we just, we talk, and, and that's a big piece. You know, you, I know we go through the creative process and, and part of it is that incubation phase, right? Where you're not getting a lot done, but your brain's parsing a lot of these things in the background. Um, but of course that's a, you know, it's just a lifelong thing. But I, I, so many, so many great writers have talked about, yeah, that those early morning hours are just getting up and, and getting to work and with that distractions, and, turning the internet off, turning the phone off. Yeah. And I think that the other thing for memoir is actually write the stories that you thought you might go to your grave with because they make you look so bad, mm. you know, like really, mm -hmm. and not the, the stories on the surface, but the stories inside, like what you were really thinking, because it, I think a lot of stories are hiding behind those stories. Mm. And so if, so that helped me was just, 
all right, what if I actually wrote this thing I didn't want anyone ever to know? That there's a scene where I'm trying to get myself into Harvard. And I really thought no one should ever know about that. It was so embarrassing. <laughs> but then I wrote it and it was a good scene. It was a good story. And so it didn't matter that it made me embarrassed because it had some greater purpose, which was that it was it was a good story. And so I think there were other stories beyond that that I wouldn't have written if I hadn't started to delve into the things I was ashamed of. And those mm -hmm. things, things that if you if you really look at your part in them, you laugh a little. Like I was writing about my adolescence and I was feeling sorry for myself as one does about one's adolescence. It was so hard, you know. They were so mean to me. And it's true, it was hard. And people weren't great at points. But but then there's another possibility, which is that I basically, I mean, my ex-boyfriend said to me at a certain point, I've read the section. It seems kind of self-pitying. I huh. knew you then. You always get what you want. So I'm just not buying it. And so this, this quality of being, of being willing to look under your own stories, especially the ones where you feel bad for yourself and think, how did I have a part in that? And when you can chuckle, maybe it, it means you're getting closer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then it, it does release something. It makes it easier to write when you're laughing at yourself a little. Yeah. Yeah. And it, well, that really shines through in your book, the kind of self-facing nature and, the, and also the uh, wisdom beyond the, the character's ears. But, but, uh, but I'm definitely the last person to talk about writer's block. I have no idea whether I had writer's block. <laughs> I just couldn't, couldn't really write. And then when I was writing, it was terrible and I didn't know where I was going and I didn't want to be writing this book. And I, you know, and it took me forever. So I hope for all of your writers that they'll have so much more luck and speed than I did. <laughs> well, um, I wish that them that's a good point and you know but uh, there is something to be said and respectfully about um not rushing to publish and uh, as you as you noted so wait what was <laughs> i gonna so yeah so the shame thing i wanted to tell people about the shame thing that's okay what I yeah but i Pick up. but I'm, I'm not sure i'm communicating it properly you know i'm not sure i'm communicating properly how bad it is to investigate the things you feel ashamed of to the point mm. where you can laugh at yourself really mm -hmm. um and feel just your own humanity all around you and that it's okay. So that process is bad, but that's what opened it up for me that I could write. So that's what I wanted to tell other people about. I think, um, I think that's a great place to wrap up. And, um, you know, I usually ask authors one uh, goofy question, like if you could choose any author from any era for an all expense paid dinner to your favorite restaurant in the world, uh, who would you choose and where would you take them? I never know what to do with these questions. I always feel like I'm supposed <laughs> to say Einstein and I'm not interested enough in Einstein and I should be. And so then I get into this sort of shame cycle. Um, no, I would want to be with Isaac Dennison mm. um, because I loved her memoir out of Africa and it would be so interesting also just to talk about Africa Yeah. and to maybe I would want to have dinner in Africa because you said it was all expenses paid. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. But, um, so I was thinking of her. Oh, is she allowed, is the author allowed to be dead? Of course. Okay, good. Because <laughs> she's obviously dead. Um, <laughs> Judith Thurman wrote a great biography of Isaac Dennison that brought mm. her alive for me too. But, you know, that book Out of Africa is so good. And I think right now with the baby, I have this wanderlust ri rising up in me. Desires yeah. for 
trips that I cannot now take and something about talking to someone about their, their time in Denmark and their time in Africa sounds really appealing, really interesting. And she was supposed to be such a good storyteller and so gracious in a, in a really profound way. Mm. And she was, she had this tumultuous or at least up and down relationship with, with someone who was supposed to be really incredible, Denise Finchhatton. And, and she was so in love with him. And so I guess right now I'm feeling like I'd like to have dinner with her, please. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for perfect. paying perfect, for perfect. the Africa trip. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the book is small fry. It is available in paperback and uh, it's a beautiful book. Thank you for the work. Uh, the New York Times book review called it devastating. Vogue, a masterly Silicon Valley Gothic. I like that one. And uh, New Yorker, mesmerizing, discomforting reading, a book of no small literary skill. And uh, congratulations on the work. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Of course. We will point at lisabrennanjobs.net. It's not hyphenated. And uh, you're on Twitter at Lisa Brennan Jobs, also not hyphenated. I will include those in the show notes. Is there anything you uh, else you wanted to just um, mention to listeners about where to connect with you? Are you back on a, a small tour soon? I'm on a small tour for the paperback. I've been keeping it really limited because of the the baby. Um, yeah. But I'm doing things here and there, which I should be listing on my website. So maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll tweet about them or list them on my website. If in case anybody wants to come, I would love that. Well, I will link to all the things, um, listeners seek out small fry. It is, uh, it is incredibly compelling. And, uh, also the audiobook is fantastic. That narrator does such a good job, but, um, to wrap up here, I just wanted to ask one final question. Has this been optioned for TV or film? No, I was not going to go shop it around. I was kind of waiting to see if anyone interesting came to me because I don't think mm. it necessarily needs to be made, but someone would have to be really hot to make it. <laughs> they'd have yeah, to be really, yeah. they'd have to really need to make it, I guess. Um, well, it'd be a pretty, pretty interesting period piece, obviously, as a, you know, not necessarily a miniseries, but like a, um, you know, a limited series or something like that, but. Well, and I think people are interested in the, in the stories of young women and girls, yeah. and those have been undertold. Whether this one needs to be it, I don't know, or one of them, but I think that they, they're you know as important as the stories of boyhood, and so that's one way I like to think about it. And then there's California as a character too, right? And mm, that time, mm -hmm. or the West Coast, yeah. So no, not optioned. All right. Well. We'll look forward to hearing more about that. Come back anytime and uh, congratulations on your successes. Um, we'll look for more work from you in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was really fun. Thanks so much for joining us for this half of the Writer Files. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or a review to help other writers find us. You can always leave us a comment or a question and visit the entire archives at writerfiles.fm where we also humbly ask you to support the show with a secure donation to help us keep going. Just click the little yellow PayPal donate button over at writerfiles.fm. And you can always chat with me 
on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week. And thank you. <laughs>